This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. The one predictable thing about the economics of energy production is that it's unpredictable. The one thing we do know about the energy market, and Pennsylvania is a good example of this, is it's always uncertain. You know, 10, 15 years ago, we never would have guessed natural gas would be as inexpensive as it is today, and that it would be cheaper than coal. Or right now, wind is very close to being cheaper than coal, and, and solar is projected as well. Things get even more complicated when you try to account for how those changes affect the labor market. So what that means is our energy workforce is also constantly changing, and we need to prepare that workforce for a long-term career as opposed to a short-term career. Preparing Pennsylvanians for the energy jobs of the future, coming up. But first, a look at what's been happening in environmental and energy news around the state over the last week. State government and environmental groups in Pennsylvania are still assessing the possible impact from cuts to environmental programs in the federal budget proposed last week by the Trump administration. The State Department of Environmental Protection, which currently relies on EPA funding for nearly a third of its budget, would take the biggest hit. And PECS VP for Legal and Government Affairs John Walliser says the timing couldn't be worse. This proposal now comes on the back of about 15 years of reductions in DEP funding and staffing levels. Uh, Over that time, they've seen their budget reduced at the state level by about 40 percent, and they've lost about 25 percent of their staff during that time. The cuts would directly affect Pennsylvania's ability to comply with obligations like the Chesapeake Bay cleanup and the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. And several of the things that have been zeroed out in the EPA proposal, for example, funding for the Chesapeake Bay, Um, Those are court-ordered mandates. Those are things that the department just can't wish away. In a letter to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, Pennsylvania's acting DEP Secretary Patrick McDonald warns the effects of the proposed cuts would be profound and far-reaching, with implications for everything from economic development and agriculture to radon protection. Walliser calls it a lose-lose scenario. You know, the bottom line is these cuts are going to adversely affect everyday citizens. It's going to mean a reduction in inspections for drinking water, air emission monitoring, um, and even permitting the department's ability to turn around permits for businesses. So it's going to have an economic impact as well. In all, federal grants to environmental programs would be cut by about $482 million under the Trump budget. Meanwhile, the state Senate has yet to act on Patrick McDonald's nomination to head up the DEP on a permanent basis. He's been awaiting confirmation since July, and his remains the only open cabinet nomination still unconfirmed in the Wolf administration. Without Senate action, the nomination will be automatically approved on May 10th, nearly a year since McDonald took on the role of acting secretary. In oil and gas news, a key drinking water protection provision of Act 13, Pennsylvania's shale gas drilling law, is set to expire next week. That is, unless the General Assembly revises it to comply with the state Supreme Court ruling from last year. The measure required notification of any spill that would threaten a public water supply. The court gave the legislature six months to rewrite it to also include spills affecting privately owned wells. Senate leaders say they have no plans to do so ahead of the March 27th court-imposed deadline. But DEP says it will continue notifying public water utilities of spills, even though there's no statutory requirement to do so. A new web app launched this week will make DEP's permitting process more transparent and more efficient, the agency says. Documents submitted by oil and gas companies seeking permits are now searchable on the DEP website. Both environmental and industry groups have greeted the announcement as a positive step. 
Ratepayers served by PICO, the utility that provides electricity to 1.6 million southeastern Pennsylvanians, have been watching their bills drop steadily for the last six years. And an analysis by the Philadelphia Inquirer suggests rates will continue dropping this year thanks to low prices for natural gas, which is increasingly being used to generate power. But although consumers have enjoyed about a 10 percent reduction in their electric bills since 2011, the paper notes the actual price of power provided by Pico is down 27 percent over the same period. Higher fees elsewhere in customers' bills are making up the difference. Philadelphia schools will save a projected $600 million over the next 20 years under a plan to improve energy efficiency in school buildings. The district has announced plans to replace old heating and lighting systems and make other energy-saving upgrades as part of a larger $4.5 billion repair and maintenance plan. And this note from our Luzerne office. PAC is being recognized for beautifying northeastern Pennsylvania communities through the Community Illegal Dump Site Cleanup Program. The Upper Delaware Council will honor the program with its Community Service Award for organizations at the UDC's Spring Awards Dinner on April 25th. The Illegal Dump Site Program celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Well, over here in the western half of the state, March has been all about energy. We just concluded our deep decarbonization conference last week, and there will be lots more content coming out of that event in the weeks ahead on this podcast and on the PEC website. One of our sponsors for the conference last week was Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University, which also supplied many of our speakers. Next week, they're following up the discussion with a whole slate of energy-related events, looking at not just the science and technology of energy, but also its economics and even its relationship to the arts and humanities. To get a preview of Carnegie Mellon's Energy Week, I spoke with one of the event's chief organizers. My name is uh, Deborah Stein. I am Associate Director for Policy Outreach for the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University. I'm the sort of guru of all things Energy Week. What was the idea behind Energy Week? It started about a year ago, I believe. Yeah, we. Um, I was trying to find some way so that the community could learn more about energy activities around the region. I don't think most people know that within a one-hour radius, we have every single energy source from nuclear hydropower, solar, wind, everything, is very close. But most people don't really know that. They think of the town as more of a coal town or a natural gas town. They don't realize that all the energy activities that are going on, uh, just for the energy they use, and then also that there's a great deal of energy innovation going on. We're having a policy forum Thursday that's going to focus on the energy workforce. And it's a roundtable discussion, but there'll be some very interesting presentations in the morning talking about the data in our, regarding the energy workforce in the region, thinking about possible policies to enhance that workforce so that it's successful in energy. And in this case, we're trying to make sure we have, again, a broader view of energy. So oftentimes we see very uh, focused numbers. So it might be just, say, shale or um, wind or energy efficiency. But it's really important to look across the spectrum and for workers to be prepared for whatever employment comes our way uh, across that spectrum as well. So the question is, how can we achieve that so that we have not just, say, shale workers and solar panel workers, but we have energy workers? There's a pretty big educational challenge to, to fill that, to close that gap, I guess. Yes, it is, because a lot of the, the uh, programs that are out there, the education programs, are very siloed. And the other challenge, uh, based on my discussions with, say, the Energy Innovation Center, is it's not very easy for a worker to put 
a bunch of certificates together for an actual degree, so say for an associate degree. So that's important when they're looking at their long-term employment. Because the one thing we do know about the energy market and uh, the Pittsburgh reason, and Pennsylvania is a good example of this, is it's always uncertain. You know, 10, 15 years ago, we never would have guessed natural gas would be as inexpensive as it is today, and that it would be um, cheaper than coal. Or right now, wind is very close to being cheaper than coal and, and solar is projected uh, as well. So even not even considering any policy issues, but just looking at the economics of the issues and uh, where uh, utilities are going to get their energy from, it's constantly changing. And so what that means is our energy workforce is also constantly changing. And we need to prepare uh, that workforce and the workers need to consider how they're going to prepare themselves for a long-term career as opposed to a short-term career, uh, which leads to many uh, economic challenges. You mentioned that this is at some level kind of a community outreach a little bit. What's the mix of people you're expecting to attend, people from around campus, from around town, out of town? Yeah. Uh, we do have people who come from all over the country for the event, uh, in, but it's open to the public. So it's free, and people can come, learn about Carnegie Mellon research, learn about uh, energy policy, uh, energy law, and even the arts. We even have events that focus on um, the interconnection between energy and artistic endeavors. So it's a good way to, to think about energy in a different kind of way. And is it fairly unusual for these two, uh, or these however many, wor worlds to come together? Are, are people working sort of across disciplines on campus uh, most of the time on, on your issues, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, we have people who work across campus on research because Carnegie Mellon by itself is very interdisciplinary. We're used to working with, say, from the engineering school, which is, you know, where I am, to uh, the policy school, to the economics and so forth. But we don't very often interact with the drama school. And it's, it was very interesting. And as far as I know, it hasn't happened elsewhere. Uh, it was a good way to kind of really learn things. And uh, for our engineering students, uh, last year it was during our uh, – we have a competition for student teams from four states, and the students were making their pitches for the energy technology. We put into it also the drama students, and the difference between engineering students talking about energy and drama students talking about energy is very, very high. Yeah, what, what do they get out of it from looking at it from the other perspective? What do they learn from each other? Well, I think the drama students uh, start thinking more about energy. They probably don't really even think about the energy that they use very much. Uh, they probably maybe care about, you know, issues like climate change and so forth, but they probably don't necessarily think about it in their everyday lives. So the, I remember one of the competitors last year had a very interesting performance talking about Tesla and energy. And that's, of course, a sort of rather dramatic episode in sort of scientific history. Uh, and this is a way for them to sort of learn and, and think about those kind of issues. It's a colorful character, Tesla. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So you can see uh, how a whole play could be written about Tesla and all his different uh, discoveries and his interactions with other people and, and other inventors. Uh, for the engineering students, I think it's good for them to sort of see somebody who can be a bit more uh, dramatic. Uh, we tend to be a, a school of geeks here, and... Uh, you know, the, the drama students are very different than our geeky engineering students, which tend to dominate the campus. So it's a good way for them to sort of say, oh, you know, how they could improve their um, pitches for their energy innovations by learning something from the drama students. And so you mentioned that a lot of this will be pretty accessible to people from whatever background, but that some of it will be fairly technical, fairly specialized. For people who are coming from that world on the very wonky end of things, what's going to be the most interesting thing? Like, what's the, the headline? 
Well, for people who are uh, interested in research, I, the best uh, activity for them would be what we call our Andy Talks. And the Andy Talks are 20-minute presentations on uh, by our by CMU faculty that is on research on going on in the campus. And it is, again, from across the school, so it's not just engineering school, but it also includes people from policy and from um, architecture and other parts of the campus. So those... Uh, those talks, uh, which are kind of, you, can, you might think of them like a TED talk, only it's, we call them Andy talks for Andrew Carnegie mm -hmm. uh, and Andrew Mellon, um, is to make a, a research topic accessible to the public. So you don't have to be technical, but it's a good way, even if you are technical, to learn about a topic that you might not know anything about. And in this case, we also have involved our English department, so they're going to be talking about the intersection of energy and English. And then we have uh, other folks who are doing relatively technical topics, talking about, say, batteries, for example. So it's a good mix of people. And so I would encourage people to, to go to the, uh, the Andy Talks. Those are uh, Wednesday afternoon from about 1.30 to 5.30. Then they can stay for the drama competition and the poster uh, competition and enter, see some of our students in action. What's the best way for people to get more information about the agenda, the speakers, and the schedule? Our website is uh, cmuenergyweek.org, and they can go to uh, there to register for that event. Um, I'd also emphasize another good event for people interested in policy mm -hmm. is our uh, Energy Policy and Law Forum, which is on Friday. Uh, and that event includes some really good keynote speakers from some, including the head of the Pennsylvania Public Utilities Commission, uh, a commissioner of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the person who's the acting director of the Energy Information Administration. So again, good for people who are um, technical in nature, but also for lawyers because we are offering continuing legal education credit uh, for Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania at that event. We have incorporated the uh, Colleges of Law of West Virginia and Pitt as partners in that event, and there are also panel discussions on a number of issues. So that's also a really good day to learn about energy law and policy. So free and open to the public, but registration required? Yes, registration is required, even though it's free, and that is because some of our events have already hit capacity. Uh, for example, we have the CTO of Tesla who will be here on Tuesday night. We had 300 spots. They're definitely been all gone for a while. Uh, but some of the other events on uh, Wednesday and Friday in particular uh, still have openings uh, for those activities. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. That's Deborah Stein with the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University, which is hosting Energy Week all next week in Pittsburgh. And that's our show for this week on Pennsylvania Legacies. You can find the show on iTunes and SoundCloud and always at PACPA.org. And there you'll find much more on all of PEC's work across the state in energy and climate, in watersheds, in trails and recreation, in communities and landscapes. And all the work we do, you can read up on it all at PACPA.org. Hey, we'd appreciate it if you'd recommend our podcast to a friend. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, take a moment and leave a rating and review to help others discover the show. And by all means, let us know what you think. You can send an email to legacies at PECPA.org. Again, legacies, L-E-G-A-C-I-E-S, at PECPA.org. We'll be back with another show next Friday. Until then, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.